Please open your Bibles tonight to Mark 8. Mark 8. It's always a joy to gather on Tuesday evenings. It's so good to see each of you here. I know that it is often a struggle to get out and to church on Tuesday nights in the middle of the week after a work day and a school day, and there's a lot that goes into that. And so I so appreciate your commitment to gather with the body tonight and to hear the Word of God as we continue through our study in Mark's Gospel. And tonight we'll be in Mark 8, verses 22 through 23. We're continuing to unpack a progression of spiritual understanding as Mark's record moves us toward Peter's confession of Christ that we'll see tonight, Jesus' explanation of discipleship, and then the transfiguration of Christ that three of the disciples witnessed there on the Mount of Mount Transfiguration. I wonder if you would agree with this statement. We live in an age that idolizes human ingenuity, scientific discovery, and technological progress. The superstitions of paganism have been replaced by the superpowers of science and technology. The clothing is different, the way it looks is different, but the essence is the same. Would you agree with that? You know, the Bible doesn't say anything about cell phones, but there certainly are principles about how we use our cell phones. There are ways that we can idolize the conveniences, the technological advances, and even the scientific discoveries uh, in a way that dishonors the Lord. And even Christians can buy into humanistic thinking and a secularized worldview if we're not cautious. If we do, if we allow those little subtle effects to influence our thinking, it affects even the way that we preach Christ. It affects how we live for Christ. And throughout the epistles, we're constantly reminded that we have to deal with the flesh as believers who follow Christ. We have to deal with fleshly unbelief. And by way of introduction to our passage tonight, keep your hand there or a marker here in Mark 8, but turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and look at some statements that Paul makes towards the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, as Paul begins his letter to the Corinthians early on in verse 26, he reminds these believers, "'Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise.'" God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, 
you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And Paul is establishing that there was no human wisdom, there was no human ingenuity that worked this spiritual miracle in the lives of the Corinthians. Look again at what he says in verse 30. Because of Him you are in Christ Jesus. It's because of God that you are in Christ Jesus. Not human wisdom, not ingenuity, not religious rites. It's because of God so that whoever boasts, let him boast in the Lord. And then if you look at chapter 2, he is expressing the kind of speech that he uses as he presents Christ and preaches Christ and clarifies Christ. And in chapter 2 and verse 12, Paul writes to the Corinthians again, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And then one other passage, Colossians chapter 2, a little further on in your New Testament, through the Corinthian epistles, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And in Colossians, Paul is writing to strengthen the believers in the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ in the face of fleshly thinking that has crept in and is affecting their ability to serve Christ. And he states his commitment to strive with all the strength that God works in him to solidify their faith. And in chapter 2, verse 3, speaking of Christ, he says, "...in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." And I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. Then verse 6, Therefore, as you have received Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving." See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority." What are those passages doing? And this is just a sample of many in the epistles. They're clarifying, they're clarifying that 
we need to constantly be renewing our minds in the fullness of who Christ is, that we may live a life that honors Christ and live a life that is grounded in Christ and live a life that guards against the influences of the world. And the only way that happens is through a work of God. It's through Christ at work in us. It's through God at work in us through Christ and through His Holy Spirit. And so true conversion, when it happens, when we turn to Christ, when we're truly saved, it comes when the glory of God in the face of the person of Jesus Christ dispels the darkness of unbelief and the blinding grip of the God of this world. And then growth in Christ, as we continue to pursue Christ, growth in Christ occurs when through the spiritual weapons of divine power that Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians, the sword of the Spirit, of, which is the Word of God, for instance, when through those weapons that God has given to us, we seek to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that raises itself against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So true conversion and genuine sanctification, genuine growing to become more and more like Jesus Christ occur through the work of God in us. And what the Gospels state so clearly in propositional statements like we've just read the Gospels show us through the records of Christ's work on earth. And when we look at these records of Christ's work on earth and the Gospels, what Christ accomplished in the shadow of the cross, we have a full understanding of the significance of what Christ was accomplishing as He trained His disciples and as He fulfilled all righteousness in order to present Himself as the Redeemer, as the spotless Lamb of God, the sacrifice for our sins. So spiritual understanding, understanding the significance of God's clear and objective revelation in the Scriptures and in the Son requires a work of God. We can't attain spiritual understanding. We can't understand the depth of the riches that we have in Christ. We can't understand the depth of the riches that we have in the Word of God apart from the work of God in us. We're dead in trespasses and sins. We're fleshly and slow to hear and slow to understand. And as we've been seeing up to this point, Christ... It is Christ that has to open our ears. It is Christ that has to open our heart. It is Christ that has to open our eyes. And all of those statements are synonymous to the reality that we need Christ to supply understanding and we need Christ to soften our hard hearts to receive the things of the Spirit of God. And so tonight as we look at these verses In Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 33, our theme this evening is that grasping the fullness of Christ requires divine intervention. Grasping the fullness of Christ requires divine intervention. 
There's three parts to this passage. We have the miracle of the blind man restored to sight. We have the confession of Peter about Christ, and then the correction of Peter by Christ. And all of these work together to demonstrate that to grasp the fullness of who Christ is requires divine intervention. Let's look here at this first section in verses 22 through 26. After Jesus has interacted with the disciples and questioned them about their inability to see and their inability to hear and their inability to understand, instructively we have this miracle take place. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And they took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. He opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. What we're going to see first of all tonight is that physical blindness illustrates your spiritual condition. Point number one, physical blindness illustrates your spiritual condition. There are some unique elements about this miracle. First of all, just the setting in Mark. It follows it follows Jesus questioning the disciples about their inability to perceive spiritual things. And Jesus actually says directly in verse 18, "...having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear?" And then following the miracle, Peter obviously has something happen in his understanding where he does confess Christ. He does recognize who Christ is, and yet not in the complete fullness of Christ's mission. And so within that context, it's fascinating to see the unique elements in this particular miracle. Jesus, when the blind man comes to him, he takes the blind man and takes him away privately with his disciples, most likely, uh, to deal with his blindness. And just as a side note, this is the second miracle in a row where people have brought a hopeless and helpless person to Christ. You see that in verse 22. Some people brought to him a blind man and they begged him to touch him. And it's important to point that out, isn't it, so that we are encouraged to, for those that we are burdened with, those who are helpless, those who are hopeless, we can bring people to Christ and beg Christ on their behalf, intercede with Christ on their behalf. Christ has to do the work. But throughout the epistle of Mark, you see this consistently of others 
interceding on the behalf of the, of the helpless to bring them to Christ. And what an encouragement this is for us to continue to fervently pray and earnestly pray for those that we love that are apart from Christ and bring them to the throne of grace and beg the Lord on their behalf to do a work as these did for the blind man. Well, Jesus takes the blind man to a private location with his disciples, and instead of declaring immediate healing like he so often does, be open, be cleansed, walk, what does he do? In verse 23, he spits on his eyes, again, just a, a physical indication of what the Lord is about to do. There wasn't anything miraculous in the action. The Lord can heal however He wants to. It was an act of mercy toward this blind man. And He lays His hands on him, and then He asks him, do you see anything? Right, this is unique. The Lord hasn't done this in any of the, of, of the other miracles. He simply makes a statement, and the miracle is complete. But here, He asks the man, and he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. And so the Lord lays his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And so the unique element of this miracle is that there is a progressive nature to the healing. It's in no way an indication that Christ's power was compromised because the man saw clearly at the end of the progression. But there was a lesson that Jesus was communicating to his disciples through that healing. And you even see a parallel with what the man asks, or what Jesus asked the man, do you see anything? And then the passages that immediately follow, what does Jesus do with his disciples? He asks them questions. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Right? And they respond. And then based on their response, Jesus begins to clarify even further who he is. And so there seems to be a, a lesson here that Jesus is communicating to his disciples of the progressive nature of his work. As he opens spiritual understanding, there's a recognition of who Christ is, but then there's a progression of understanding the fullness of Christ and the fullness of what he is. And we'll expand on that uh, a little bit more as we go along. But first, let's just briefly remind ourselves that how physical blindness illustrates our own spiritual condition. Any spiritual understanding that you have, any spiritual sight that you have is because of the grace of God. By nature, we are absolutely blinded to the things of God. We can't see. We're blinded through the imputed guilt of Adam. We the moment we come into existence, according to Romans chapter 5, we are guilty before God because of the imputed guilt of Adam through the fall. Not only are we blinded by the imputed guilt of Adam, we're blinded by the darkness of the sin that John chapter 3 verse 19 says we love. 
We love darkness. We love sin. And we can't see the light because we love darkness in our natural state. We, we love to sin. We want to sin. And Ephesians 4.17 and following describes that those who are outside of Christ, they pursue sin in, in a way that is greedy, in a way where they're attempting to become skilled in their sin. And not only are we blinded by our imputed nature given to us by Adam, the imputed guilt of Adam, by the darkness of the sin that we enjoy, but those outside of Christ are also blinded by the God of this world, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. We're blinded by nature, by choices, and by supernatural powers. We're utterly hopeless in a hopeless and helpless condition when we consider ourselves in our own nature. There's nothing we can do. We can't make ourselves see. We don't even know where to look like the blind man. But Christ, in His great compassion and through His great power, what does He do? He opens the eyes of the blind. But in this, in this miracle, again, we see that Christ progressively opened the blind man's eyes. And that was not a diminishment of his power, but to teach a lesson. And, and it's important, I think, as we, look at this, as we look at this miracle and the things that follow, it's important to not get up in a precise parallel. In other words, so what does it mean when he first opened his eyes? Is that when somebody's saved? And then what does he mean when he, when he touches him again? Is that when you come to glory or is that in sanctification? Or, you know, we have to be careful to not assign precise parallels where Scripture does not, but instead to note the principle. And the principle that we find here, and as it's expanded throughout the rest of the gospel, the principle is the progressive work that Christ does when He does open our eyes to understand who He is. And then when He does begin to allow us to see more and more and more of the glory of who He is and of what He came to accomplish. So with that said, there, there are a couple uh, of lessons inherent within this miracle. There is a, a sense that the Lord does work progressively at times in drawing people to himself. Sometimes people come to an understanding of Christ, but there's a lack of clarity of who he is and even a lack of clarity of what it means to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And over time, through the word of God and through the work of the Spirit of God, through the word of God, clarity will come. There's also a reality that true followers of Christ experience progressive growth. And we're going to see this in the next account. Obviously, the disciples are true followers of Christ. They've left Christ, or they've left their, their, their vocations and they've followed Christ. And Christ has chosen them uh, to be his representatives. They are followers of Christ. And even when they acknowledge who Christ is, it's clear, though, that they have a lot to learn. They haven't fully grasped the completeness of his mission and the completeness of what he came to do. 
There's also the reality that a day is coming when all lack of clarity will dissolve in the glorious presence of Christ. Now we see darkly in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now, even when we read the Scriptures and read what the end of this chapter describes as to what it means to follow Christ, you know, we look at that and we look at it through the lens of our own presuppositions. What does it mean to, to not love the world? What does it mean to give up our lives? What does it mean to deny ourselves? And, and, and we seek to understand to the best of our ability as we, as we look at the Word of God, but still we're seeing darkly as in a mirror. But one day we will see face to face. But the overarching principle is that when Christ opens our eyes to understand Him, when He draws us to confess Him, there will be an ongoing progression of learning of Christ and understanding His work and understanding all that is involved with following Him. Again, that's what we saw from the epistles And I'd like us actually to turn to one other epistle that, again, makes this very clear. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. This is so encouraging for believers when we recognize that as we follow Christ, it's, it's not possible here to be perfect because of our flesh. But God in His goodness and His kindness and His graciousness to us through the Word of God, through His leading us to, to become part of a, of a body of Christ where the Word is taught, where people love the Lord, right? There's, there's a growth that takes place, an understanding that we gain. In Ephesians chapter 1, I'm not going to read the first 14 verses, but just to summarize what Paul does there, he, he writes a three-stanza hymn to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the riches that we have in our inheritance in Christ Jesus. It's a, it's a fascinating, overwhelming portion of Scripture. But then in verse 15, look at how he transitions. Paul says, "...for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus..." And your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. All right, so pause. What is, what is Paul saying here? I'm, I'm praying for you, Ephesians. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. Now, now my attention is pricked. Okay, Paul is praying for the Ephesians. What's he praying? I really want to learn how to pray from the Apostle Paul, from the inspired Scripture that the Apostle Paul is writing. So what is he praying for these people? After he's summarized the glorious work of salvation, well, look at verse 17. Here's what he's praying. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having eyes, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe 
according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ, when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And He put all things under His feet, and He gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So what is Paul praying? He's praying that the Ephesians would be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him having the eyes of their hearts enlightened so that they would know what is the hope of His calling. And then he just goes off on another glorious statement about all that Christ has accomplished through His death, burial, and resurrection. And he's praying, oh God, would you please help the Ephesians church to understand the glories of all that they have in Christ so that they can live out a life in Christ that brings glory and honor to your name. And you say, well, what does that look like? Well, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 fill that out. But in order to effectively follow the instructions of Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, what we're seeing is that God has to continually work in us to give us spiritual understanding, to cause us to progressively grow in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul, Paul is praying for that to happen. What would it look like in our prayer meetings and I know this is the heart of those of you who gather for prayer. It's a joy when that, to hear that when that happens. As our prayer meetings are focused on the spiritual work, the spiritual work that we desire God to do in the hearts of His people. If God gives us that kind of spirit, if we have an understanding, a growing understanding of the magnificence of who Christ is, the magnificence of all that He has done, folks, then everything else starts to fall into place. And this is how Christ works. There's a progressive growth, a progressive spiritual growth. I'm going back to Mark. It's hard for me to leave Ephesians. I love Ephesians. I love 1 Peter. I love Jude. I love the whole thing. It's hard for me to go back to one passage. But that's where we are tonight. We're in Mark. So back to Mark 8. One point of clarification, and I think we know this, but just to state it and make, make sure, the two phases of Jesus' healing here of the blind man. It's not a second work of grace leading to a once-for-all sanctification. It'd be great if that happened, we think, but that's not how God works. There's a progressive nature and a progressive growth that we experience until the day we meet the Lord Jesus. So physical blindness, as illustrated in this, in this miracle, physical blindness illustrates your spiritual condition. We're hopeless and we're helpless outside of Christ in our natural condition. But when Christ opens our eyes, when He causes us to recognize who He is, then there's a progressive growth that begins as we grow more and more and more in our understanding of the Lord 
and His work. And so now let's go on into the next section here in verses 27 through 30. And we'll notice in in this section, secondly, that confessing the person of Christ requires divine intervention. Confessing the person of Christ requires divine intervention. Let's pick up here in verse 27. And Jesus went on with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way He asked His disciples, "'Who do people say that I am?' And they told him, John the Baptist, and others said, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Confessing the person of Christ requires divine intervention. And in this passage, we see, first of all, that human assessment always fails. So sub-point number one or A, depending on how you like your outlines to run, or bullet point. Sub-point number one is human assessment always fails. Human assessment always fails. And this is what we see in that first question. Jesus, there's there's a shift here taking place in Jesus' ministry. He goes on with His disciples. He heads toward the northern extremities of the borders of Israel to Caesarea Philippi. It's actually a very pagan area, 25 miles north of the north of the Sea of Galilee. He's taking them away. He's getting ready to start moving toward Jerusalem. And as He prepares to move toward Jerusalem, He begins to prepare His disciples for what is to take place there. And so He goes on with His disciples, and He asks the question, who do people say that I am? And He's asking, what's the general consensus? The crowds that gather, when you're out among the people, when you're passing out the bread to the 4,000 and passing out the bread to the 5,000, who do people say that I am? What are the polls saying? And they told him, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others one of the prophets. So here we have these people, these crowds, and they've witnessed the work of Jesus. They've witnessed the miracles. They've seen lepers cleansed. They've seen demons cast out of those who are demon-possessed. They've seen the lame walk. They've seen dead people raised up. They've seen sick people healed. They've experienced the the miracle of bread being provided for thousands and thousands of people. And they've witnessed the absolute perfection of the sinless life of Jesus Christ. They've heard Him teaching. They're astonished even at the authority of His teaching Right, all of these, all of these things they've witnessed firsthand. They've been right here with Jesus, and yet they could not recognize him in his fullness. Oh, he's he's like someone who's who's called of God to preach for God. He's he's like John the Baptist, maybe a raised up John the Baptist. Maybe he's the Elijah that is to come. Maybe he's one of the other prophets, a Jeremiah, or someone that God has miraculously raised from the dead. So even a little bit of some miraculous in there. 
but they're not putting him in the different category that Christ alone holds. In fact, in fact, it's fascinating what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 about the prophets. Turn over to that passage, 1 Peter chapter 1. After Hebrews, James, and then 1 Peter, getting toward the end of your New Testament. First Peter chapter 1, verse 10, as Peter summarizes the salvation that we have in Christ, he then says, verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So what do we see in that passage? What Peter expresses is that the prophets who prophesied, how did they prophesy? Well, verse 11 says they were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted of the sufferings of Christ and the glories or the subsequent glories. So those prophets, one of the other prophets or Elijah or John the Baptist, they were prophesying in dependence on the power of the Spirit of Christ the spirit of the Christ that they were prophesying, even though they didn't yet identify him or know who he was. But with Peter's statement that their prophecies were taking place through the power of the spirit of Christ, what is Peter doing? Well, he's putting Christ in a completely different category. Christ pre-existed his incarnation, And Christ pre-existed His incarnation in such a way that it was the Spirit of Christ in the prophets prophesying of Christ and His sufferings and the glories that should follow. And so going back to Mark, that human assessment, although it was an attempt to identify Christ at the highest level that they could, it completely failed to recognize the uniqueness of the person of Jesus Christ as the God-man, the pre-existent Christ who had come to earth and to accomplish God's will. And that is what human assessment will do. Human assessment will always fail, no matter how high it, it climbs, how high it tries to go in identifying Christ, if it neglects the statements of who Christ is, if it rejects any element of the biblical record of who Christ is, it will always fail. It will either deny that Jesus is God or claim that Jesus is God and not man. One of those two errors or even a mixture of both of them. In John's epistle, I won't have us turn there, you can just note this for your own reference, But in 2 John, 
In 2 John verses 7 through 10, John warns those to whom he writes, if anyone does not receive the God of the Bible, the God-man, the God who came in flesh, then do not fellowship with that man. To reject the fullness of Christ is spiritually destructive. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God. And human assessment will always fail. And even the human assessment of those who were with Jesus, who experienced the miracles, they could not grasp the fullness of who Christ was and the darkness of their understanding. There are, there are many examples of this, but let me just give you one, one example in the time, contemporary example. Jehovah's Witness, you've probably talked to a few in your time, but in Jehovah's Witness on their website, they actually make this statement, Jesus is not Almighty God. And there is no scriptural basis for the doctrine of the Trinity. They try to elevate Christ, but they deny His deity. They deny that He is the God-man. Human assessment, it will, always, it will always fail. Several years ago, this just came to mind, several years ago, a Jehovah's Witness had come and was talking and you know, trying to convert me, and... Uh, we had an interesting conversation. This is in South Carolina, and in South Carolina, almost everybody's Baptist, and he used to be a Baptist, and he was telling me about how he got converted to Jehovah's Witness because he could not reconcile the Trinity. And so because he could not, in his own human reason, reconcile the Trinity, he converted to Jehovah's Witness because of that statement, because they deny the Trinity and they deny the deity of Christ. And that is where human assessment will always lead. It will always fail and it will always lead to blasphemy. Well, after asking his disciples, Jesus then, or asking his disciples what people say, Jesus turns to them in verse 29. But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Where human assessment always fails, true confession, true confession of Christ reveals divine intervention. Jesus turns to his disciples, he makes a clear transition, but who do you say that I am? And, and the you is emphatic, you disciples. In distinction from the crowds, disciples, what is your confession? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers decisively, personally, and representatively. He's answering as the representative of the group as well as personally, and he says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. Now let's think about this for a moment. Isaiah 53 says of Christ, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Here's Jesus to his disciples, an average looking person. There's nothing 
physically about him that distinguishes him as anything different. Jesus was a man standing in front of Peter, and he confessed him to be the fulfillment of all the Old Testament expectations of the Messiah. You are the Christ. Or as Matthew records it, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what we find through the progression of the narrative in Mark, as he has made clear that spiritual understanding only comes through divine work, and through the direct statement in Matthew when Jesus responds to Peter and says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, what is very clear is that Peter's confession of Christ was through divine intervention. It was a work of God in his life that allowed him to stand there in front of this man and say, you are the fulfillment of all the Old Testament expectations of Israel. You are the anointed one. You are the Messiah. True confession reveals divine intervention. And when we look at the Old Testament that pointed to the Messiah, there are three categories of people that were typically anointed. And those categories were priests, prophets, and kings. And in Christ is the fulfillment of all of those. You are the Messiah. And although Peter did not fully understand the, the complete significance of this confession, the complete significance of Christ's work, By faith, through a work of God in him, he recognized that Jesus was the appointed Messiah that was come to save his people. Now, at this point in history, the Jewish expectation of a Messiah was kind of a Joshua David king. They were looking for a deliverer and a conqueror and a ruler, and in Peter's, in Peter's eyes and the eyes of the disciples, that likely is what they had in mind. In fact, if you remember Acts 1, even after the resurrection, what did the disciples ask Jesus? Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Right? They still had the residual thoughts of looking for a Joshua David type king and conqueror that was going to destroy their enemies, and give the land back to Israel. So he didn't understand or comprehend the fullness of Christ's work, which is why we have verse 30. He strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And it's a very forceful warning that Jesus gives to the disciples. Don't tell anybody what you said about me. You say, well, why did that happen? Well, that brings us to our third and final point this evening. We've seen that physical blindness illustrates your spiritual condition. We've seen that confessing the person of Christ requires divine intervention. And as we move into verses 30 through 33, let's notice third, that accepting the work of Christ or accepting the fullness of the work of Christ requires divine intervention. So confessing the person of Christ, that requires divine intervention. When I understand Christ is not a man alone. He's the God-man. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. 
But then as I grow in Christ, as we, as we understand the fullness of what Christ came to do, accepting the work of Christ also requires divine intervention. An intervention for clarity and an intervention for correction. Let's look first at the intervention for clarity. Look at verse 31. After Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Christ, he begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priest and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. He said it clearly. So in this passage, Jesus epitomizes pedagogical instruction. He, he asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? They confess, you're the Christ. Yes, that's correct. I am the anointed one. That's been revealed to you by the Father. Now it's time to build on that. Now it's time to start filling out your understanding of what the anointed one will accomplish, of how he will accomplish the will of God here on earth. The Son of Man will suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests. And you think, what? This is the expected Messiah of the Jews. And the Jewish leaders are going to reject him? Right? This is mind-blowing. You know that mind-blowing emoji on your phone? Right? This is the real mind-blowing stuff. They can't comprehend this. The the leaders are going to reject you? And he's going to be killed? Killed? The Son of Man? Killed? And after three days, rise again, right? Everything that Jesus just said is contrary to what Peter and the other apostles would have understood. But in that teaching, in that summary teaching, which is going to be repeated in chapter 9 and again in chapter 10, we find that Christ expresses his role of priest as he teaches that he is the sacrifice and the one presenting the sacrifice for sin. The Son of Man is going to be killed and on the third day rise again. Christ expresses his role not only of priest, but he expresses his role of prophet as he proclaims the plan of God from the foundation of the world predicting his death. Peter in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit of God comes and he preaches on the day of Pentecost, Peter will declare that the crucifixion happened according to the preordained plan of God. And Christ here as the perfect prophet, as the one who's come to, to exposit the person of God, he's declaring, he's declaring the plan of God from the foundation of the world for redemption from sin. He will be killed and on the third day rise again. Christ also expresses his role of king through the self-designation that he uses of son of man. The son of man will suffer many things and be rejected and killed and on the third day rise again. Let me have you go ahead and turn to an Old Testament passage that will help firm this up in our thinking, turn to Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 7, right after Ezekiel, and then Daniel 
Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. These are the verses that really inform our understanding of what the Jews thought when they heard, Son of Man. So Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, Daniel's seeing this vision of all that's going to take place in the end of days, and this is what it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Right, that's the summary teaching of the Son of Man from the Old Testament. This, this one that, that will rule all peoples and nations and languages and they'll all serve Him and it'll have an everlasting dominion. And then you come back to Mark and you read, the Son of Man will suffer many things and be killed. Oh yes, but rise again. Jesus is clarifying His mission to His disciples He's doing it in the role of priest, prophet, and king. He came to reveal the righteousness of God and the hatred God has for sin by paying the penalty for those he came to save. As Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Yes, He is coming again, and He's coming with a full and final salvation from the, from the ultimate wrath of God. But He came the first time to bear the sins of many. The Messiah, the Anointed One the prophet, priest, and king, the Son of Man. And as God begins to open your eyes through the clarity of the teaching of Christ, through the clarity of the person of Christ, the fullness of Christ is overwhelming. But Peter didn't think so immediately. Look at his response. Verse 32 in the middle he gets it. He knows what Jesus is saying. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing the disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. So again, we're seeing that accepting the work of Christ requires divine intervention. Intervention for clarity but then also intervention for correction. Here's a problem. Peter has just confessed Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the expected one from all the Old Testament prophecies. They have in mind this ruling king, this mighty one from God. And then Jesus starts to teach him the one that Peter has just confessed to be the Messiah, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament expectations. And what does Peter do? He rebukes him. And the word for rebuke is the same word that was used back in verse 30 when Jesus warned the disciples to not talk about him. And it's the same word that 
will be used in verse 33 when Jesus rebukes Peter. There's an authoritative nature to what Peter is doing. Peter is correcting the Son of Man. You're the Messiah, and you're wrong. Come on, Peter. I say that, but I'm really grateful for Peter. Because, right, don't we all do that? Oh, this truth is wonderful. Christ is wonderful. And then I turn in a fleshly response to one of my family members, right? The patience of the Lord. Peter attempts to correct the Messiah that he just confessed. Why did he do that? Well, Jesus, Jesus teaching is not matching Peter's presuppositions. When Peter says Messiah, yes, he's identifying him correctly, but he's identifying with the lens of his own presuppositions. You're the one that's going to deliver us from the Romans. You're the one that's going to establish the earthly kingdom of Israel right now. And Jesus' teaching shakes the foundation of his presuppositions. And he's so shaken in the foundations of his thinking that he just explodes. No, 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 you're wrong. That can't be the case. And folks, this is what happens when we follow Christ. And and this will become so much more evident as we look at the end of the chapter, Lord willing, on Sunday. Following Christ involves constant reshaping of our prejudices and presuppositions. I mean, go back, just think about the passages that we looked at early on. What what needs to happen? A continued work of God because we continually tend to go back to our fleshly ways of thinking, to our, our thinking that's infiltrated with unbelief. And we're confronted by the truth of Scripture and we agree with it until it hits something in our mind and say, no, 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 not there. But we need, we need our prejudices and presuppositions reshaped constantly and, and following Christ does that. You know, there, there are two primary examples that, that so often arise within pastoral ministry. And, and I, love, I love the opportunities when, when these arise. You know, often people will come to Christ. Christ changes them. They're new creatures. And then they come across the doctrine of election. I didn't choose Christ? No. All right. Some prejudices and presuppositions have been exposed. So are you going to submit to Christ? Are you going to submit to what the Bible says happened about in your salvation? Are you going to submit to what the Bible says about your condition apart from Christ? Or another one, just the nature of the atonement to satisfy the wrath of God. God, God is wrathful? You mean those that are outside of Christ, God, God's wrath rests on them? Yes. Yes. And the work of Christ was to take upon himself and to appease and satisfy the wrath of a holy God, the just and righteous wrath of a holy God. Ah, oh, the presuppositions, the prejudices 
are shaken, are you going to submit to the, the Word of God? Are you going to submit to Scripture? What do you do when corrected by Scripture, when corrected by Christ in Scripture? And that's an important question. Obviously, Peter is following Christ. He's a disciple. He's one of the twelve. And yet, when he speaks out of turn, when he speaks still clinging to his presuppositions and clinging to those presuppositions in the face of divine teaching, divine authority, divine correction, what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here's Peter. He just confessed Christ. He just confessed Christ, but now because of his presuppositions and his unbelieving response, he's becoming a mouthpiece of Satan and the presence of Christ to the mission that God sent Christ to accomplish. He's becoming an instrument of Satan to oppose the Lord Jesus. And so Jesus rebukes him, get behind me, Satan. You're doing the work of Satan, Peter, when you oppose and when you turn away from what I am teaching, what I am teaching as the Messiah, what I am teaching is the will of God. Clinging to presuppositions in the face of divine authority amounts to speaking for Satan, and it's a symptom of human thinking. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Anytime our minds, our, our, maybe I could put it this way, our faith, our response to Scripture is informed by the things of this world, we're speaking, we're speaking as those whose mind is not on the things of God. We're speaking as those who are influenced by the world and the God of this world is the devil. Peter rebukes, or Peter rebukes Christ because his presuppositions did not match Jesus' teaching. And initially, he refused to submit himself. And so Christ corrects him strongly. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus, in his correction of Peter, though, it's a mercy. He's not condemning him, he's correcting him. And this is the mercy of our Father. How often do we speak out of turn? How often do we fail to submit ourselves to the teaching of Scripture? And yet the Lord in His loving kindness corrects us. He intervenes to correct us. Oh, correct us strongly, discipline us sometimes very strongly in ways that are unpleasant but ultimately yield the peaceable fruits of righteousness according to Hebrews chapter 12. Accepting the work of Christ requires divine intervention. But we have a Bible. We have the Spirit of God within us. The work of Christ to rest in all the spiritual resources we need, aren't we grateful? Aren't we grateful for all the things that God has done 
through His mercy to us in Christ to allow us to grow and to grasp the fullness of Christ through His work in us. And may the Lord give us grace to value His Word, to read His Word, to submit to His Word, that by His grace we will continue to progressively grow and develop the mind of Christ that brings glory and honor to the Lord. Father, thank You tonight for Your love to us expressed through Jesus Christ and His work of redemption on the cross. We pray, Lord, that You would give us Your grace to pursue the things that are above, to pursue growth in Christ's likeness, to put to death the things that are earthly in us, and to clothe ourselves with the character and the mind of our gracious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank You for the time that we've had in Your Word and pray that You would continue to strengthen us to do Your will as we serve You this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.